Thank you for listening in to the King's Chapel podcast. We hope this message is a blessing to you. Please stay tuned after the message for more information about King's Chapel. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 24 as um, we are in a series uh, within Matthew. So we've been here, we've been going through Matthew verse by verse, um, a series that we've called Coming Soon. As Matthew 24 and 25, um, Jesus has to do, or is talking about the coming destruction of the temple of Jerusalem and the signs of the coming of the end of the age. And it's looking ahead to different things um, that we'll be looking at throughout the course of this series. And so today, we are looking at this, the abomination of desolation. Now, that just sounds ominous, doesn't it, and daunting. I mean, you, you, you look back at, at this with these, these uh, movie posters. And by the way, a little aside, I encourage you to like, get on social media and look at this closely. Um, Tech not only designed this, he designed like each of these little movie posters, and uh, it's actually quite uh, creative and clever. So take advantage of that. But you know, one of these, one of these movies could be could have been called the uh, Abomination of Desolation. But that's what we're going to look at today in Matthew 24, 25 to 50. This is all part of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus is answering these questions of the destruction of Jerusalem and the signs of the end of the age. And so here's, here's the question that begins this whole discourse. And we've been looking at this every week and we will continue to look at this every week. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? These things meaning his prophecy that not one stone of the temple will be left on another. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age. Now we call this the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is here on the Mount of Olives with his disciples teaching from here and they are looking down, pondering the temple area, the prophecy that Jesus had just made there. And they're sitting here and and these tombs wouldn't have been there, these ossuaries, but this would have been kind of the view. They're looking at this temple. Jesus, if you remember in the previous chapters, had just sparred with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and Jesus had pronounced woes on the religious leaders and on the temple. And the disciples are inquiring about these words of Jesus. And so we're looking at these two questions. So let's pick up now Matthew chapter 24, picking up at verse number 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or Sabbath. So Jesus begins this by saying, when you see the the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, when you see it standing in the holy place, then flee. Don't even go back for your cloak. Don't even go back inside. 
run, literally run for the hills. So, the question is this. Which of these two questions is Jesus addressing in these verses? Is he addressing when will these things be, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans? Or is he describing something that will be at the end of the age? Which one is it? Which one is he describing? Oops. So does the abomination of desolation in 2415 refer to the destruction of the temple or to the event at the end of the age? Now just so you know, today we're going to be we're going to be wading out into the deep weeds. Um, the the, the uh, text this morning demands it. This is not a simple, hey, here's what it is. Um, our goal this morning is not to get lost in the weeds, but we are going to be wandering out into some challenging territory. This is going to be more, very much more of a teaching than, uh, than, than a, a, a sermon. And so, I don't want to sound like I'm demeaning you, but pay attention. Um, <laughs> Because we're going to cover a lot of territory. Because this question here, this is not an easy question to answer. And there are, there are, are theologians and scholars who fall on one side and on the other. Now, I don't know about you, but any time that I'm not sure how to decide between option A or option B, there's always option C, right? All of the above. And the all of the above option um, is a challenge because we have to answer this question. What do we mean when we say that a prophecy is fulfilled? So if Jesus, Jesus made two prophecies here, right? The prophecy of the temple, of the destruction of the temple, and the prophecy of his coming at the end of the age. So what do we mean when we say that a prophecy is fulfilled? So if we're going to choose C, all of the above, we call this double fulfillment, now, that sounds like a cop-out answer, right? I mean, it kind of feels like one. If you look at it and say, well, which one of these, and you're going to choose C, all of the above, double fulfillment, it's fulfilled both in 70 AD and in the coming, that feels like a cop-out. However, we do see examples in Scripture of double fulfillment. The most notable of those is the prophet Isaiah. When Isaiah had prophesied that the virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And that was fulfilled immediately in King Ahaz, who Isaiah was prophesying during his time. His, um, and there was a son that was born that was a fulfillment of this prophecy to Ahaz. And yet Matthew, as we saw in the beginning of Matthew, when Jesus is born, takes this prophecy of Isaiah that had already been fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime and said that wasn't just talking about this child that was born to be assigned to King Ahaz. It was also fulfilled in the coming of Jesus, the virgin being with child and his name being Emmanuel. So the question this morning is this, is double fulfillment really an option? Or do we need to choose? So Jesus had said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, and then he puts, let the reader understand. So my question is, 
Do you understand? When, when we see, when we, do we understand what, what Jesus is talking about? When he says, talks about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. So we are going to look at the book of Daniel. Now, abomination of desolation could also be translated as a desolating sacrilege. It's something that is, that is sacrilegious, that is unholy, that's done in the place of the temple that so profanes it that the temple worship would stop or that the things would, would, would cease to function. And we see as far as Daniel that the abomination of desolation is mentioned three different times in Daniel. Once in chapter 9, once in chapter 11, and once in chapter 12. So if you want to turn over to the book of Daniel, we're going to, we're going to look at these three. We're going to look at them as in-depth as we can, but as quickly as we can. Um, because the point of this morning is not to do a sermon on or study on Daniel. But we do need to look and see. When Jesus said, Daniel talked about this, what exactly is going on? So Daniel, let's start with Daniel chapter 9. So here's the context of Daniel 9. You can kind of see it if you're looking there. Is that Daniel repents on behalf of the nation and asks God to restore Jerusalem and the people. So Daniel, <coughs> excuse me, Daniel had gotten a copy of Jeremiah's writings. Now, Jeremiah, would, Jeremiah wrote during the destruction of, of Jerusalem under uh, the Babylonians, and, Daniel, or, and Jeremiah was there to see it. That's what the whole book of Lamentations is about. It's his lament over the destruction of Jerusalem. But Jeremiah had, had written... Jeremiah had written that, that the exile would last for 70 years. And so um, Daniel does a little math and figures out that the time of the exile, according to Jeremiah, is about done. So he begins to pray and intercede that God would deliver them, that God would fulfill the promise that he gave to Jeremiah. And he repents on behalf of the people. He confesses sins. He's asking God to restore Jerusalem, restore the temple, restore the people and the nation. And then God sends Jeremiah, I'm sorry, sends Daniel the answer. And it picks up in verse number 24. And here's the answer. Seventy weeks, or I put in brackets here, sevens. And the reason you'll see this throughout this passage, that in Hebrew, the word week means seven. So, so, you, could call, so you could just as easily do 70 sevens. In fact, most, most scholars believe when it says weeks, it's referring to a period of seven years. So 70 weeks or 70 sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to put an end to sin. So this is what's, this is their, 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 they're doing penance in a sense of, for what they had done. And to atone for iniquity and to bring uh, in everlasting righteousness and to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild to Jerusalem, because they're in exile, they're in Babylon, from the word going out to restore and rebuild to the coming of, and it's not the anointed one, it's an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. 
Then, for 62 weeks, or sevens, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and the end, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, one seven, and for half of a week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come the one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Let the reader understand, right? <laughs> you read that and you go. All righty then. Anyway, so you look back at these prophecies through the lens of history. And scholars agree, this is one, maybe one of the few things that scholars agree on, uh, is that these prophecies in Daniel were fulfilled in history between the time of the Daniel receiving the prophecy and the coming of Jesus. And so this man that he's referring to here is someone we're going to talk about. His name is Antiochus IV, Epiphanes was his nickname, of Syria. Or, um, so here's a picture of a coin of him. And here's what's going on. This, this, was, a, this was a little bit before um, this period. But as you can see, here's the Mediterranean, here's Jerusalem. And uh, Rome, or uh, yeah, here's the boot of Italy. And so here's Antioch, this is Syria. This is, the Seleucids are, are controlling this. And you can see at the point of this map, they don't have Jerusalem. It's controlled by the Ptolemies of Egypt. But you can also see that the Ptolemies are, they've extended way up here, and this is, I mean, you could just imagine this is a hotbed, right? Also, you can see that the Ptolemies have apparently been getting on some boats, and they are making inroads into the, the Syrian kingdom here. So, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's here in Antioch. He, he is not happy with what's going on with the, the, the Ptolemies in Egypt. So he makes, at the, at the point that we're talking about today, he's actually in control of this area. Things had shifted. But he's, he's going to come down here. He's going to deal with the Ptolemies. So he gets down there. And when he arrives, a small contingent from Rome of the Roman Empire had, had gotten word of what was going on, and they had shown up down here to meet Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes comes marching in with his, um, with his army and in full regalia, you know, and just with, with power. And this small Roman contingent says... If you fight the Ptolemies, you fight Rome. And so Antiochus Epiphanes had a decision to make, and he said, in fact, this was, they, they, they literally drew a line that he was not supposed to cross. That's where we get the phrase, draw a line in the sand. So they drew this line in the sand, and he said, give me a couple of days, let me, let me make a decision. And, and the, the Roman official came and drew a circle around him and said, you will give us an answer before you leave this circle, 
or we will consider it an act of war. And so Antiochus Epiphanes is, is here with his big army and the little Roman legion, and he leaves to head back home with his tail tucked between his legs. Absolutely humiliated. Now, when you've had a bad day at work, and you come home, and the cat is scratching the furniture, what do you do? You take your day out on the cat, right? I mean, you let the cat have it. Now, the problem is that as he's traveling back from Jerusalem, or from, from Egypt to Antioch, he's coming through Jerusalem. And they controlled this area, but there was a lot of resistance. He already didn't really like these, these Jews who wouldn't submit to his authority very well. And so he comes back, and you can read the history. He comes back and takes out all of his frustrations on Jerusalem, making it illegal to own the Torah and illegal to circumcise your children. He goes in to the temple. You may have heard this history. Goes into the temple and has a pig sacrificed on the altar. Sets up an idol to Zeus in the temple and cuts off for the first time since it had been rebuilt, the temple had been rebuilt after the exile, for the first time in about 400 years, stops the daily sacrifices. And, for, and, and, and in the midst of all this, you may be familiar with the Maccabean Revolt. This, this is the turn of events that stirs up the Maccabean Revolt that comes against them. And, and it takes about three years, three and a half years maybe, and finally Syria is pushed out of Jerusalem, but the temple is desecrated. The sacrifices have stopped. This man, Antiochus Epiphanes, was not well known by history, but in this part of the world was one of the most ruthless, bloodthirsty men to ever grace that nation. And we don't have time to look at all the history. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna tag team here with a scholar just so you can understand where, where they're coming from. So these sevens in Daniel, the division into sevens is variously interpreted but covers the Babylonian period. The anointed prince being either reckoned by Cyrus, who was the one who gave the decree to return, or by Jeshua, who was, he was the first priest when they got back to rebuild the temple from Babylon. The 62 sevens cover the period from 171 BC when the legitimate high priest Onius was murdered. And the last seven represents the short time before the end comes and God vindicates his own. The restoration of the temple in 164 BC was that victory. So the abomination of desolation of Antiochus Epiphanes happened in 168 roughly 100, you know, 168 years or so before the coming of Jesus. So the, the prophecy here in Daniel actually fits really well with the history that we have of Antiochus Epiphanes. However, Dr. Baldwin will go on to say, this historical interpretation is cer certainly correct in seeing a primary fulfillment in Daniel's prophecy in the second century BC, but to confine its meaning to that period 
is to close one's eyes to the witness of Jesus and of the New Testament writers in general that it also has had a future significance. So here's what she's saying. She's saying when we read the Old Testament, we don't just read the Old Testament as it is. We interpret the Old Testament in light of what the New Testament says. And the point that she's getting here is, is as Daniel wrote these words, they were certainly fulfilled in the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. But when Jesus and the New Testament writers look back on this event, they see something more. They see something that might be considered a double fulfillment. So now let's look at Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. Now, this is where Daniel receives a prophecy concerning the king of the south and the king of the north. So if you look, think about that map, the king of the north, if you follow the history, could very easily, it was referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, the king of the south, to the Ptolemies in Egypt. And you read that, and it really does... It really does go well with the history of what is going on. So listen to what Daniel says. This is all the way down in chapter, in verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid to withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take, you can see this is what happened when, um, Antiochus Epiphany left and headed back to. He became enraged against the Holy Covenant. And he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So again, he's writing this prophecy fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, of him coming, leaving there, coming against the holy people of God, eliminating the sacrifices, and desecrating the temple. An abomination, something evil that makes it desolate. And chapter, chapter 11 continues with these king of the north and king of the south, and then what happens is, is this. In chapter 12, Daniel, the prophecy moves straight into the events of the end. If you look at it at the end of chapter 12, he's going on with all of the stuff about the king of the north and the king of the south. And then it moves, and I think the chapter division there obscures how this flows. But chapter 12, here's what we're gonna notice when we start reading chapter 12. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you the end so you can see it the first time through so we don't have to go back. Here's what's going to happen. Daniel's going to describe the events of the end. What we see then when we compare that to the New Testament, when we look at the Olivet Discourse that we've been looking at so far, when we looked at um, Matthew 13 that we looked at last week, the parable of the net and the parable of the weeds, when we even look at the book of Revelation, when, when, when they are writing about the events of the end of the age, they are using terminology from Daniel 12. When, when they talk about the end time, Daniel 12, 
Some scholars even believe that Daniel 12 is, is just is talking about the coming of Jesus, and, and, and maybe so. But when Jesus talks about the end, when he says the kingdom is like, is like a net that uh, brings in all kinds of good fish and they separate the good from the bad, and it's like, it's, like, it's like the end of the age when the Father separates the righteous from the wicked. When the New Testament writers write about the end of the age, they use language from Daniel 12. So Jesus uses the language of Daniel 12 to describe the end of the age, which if you were here last week, includes Jesus' coming, the resurrection of the dead, and the final judgment. So let's look here at Daniel 12 and let's see if we see any New Testament language. So Daniel 12, at that time shall arise Michael. We saw a lot of angel words in Matthew 13, if you remember that. The angels would come and, and gather the harvest. The great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. We're going to see that type of language next week. Well, actually in two weeks. Um, Dr. Rose will be with us next week. In our next sermon, we're gonna, the, the, the very next thing talks about tribulation that the world has not, has not seen before or since. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in a book. We see this in Revelation at the end of time that the books were opened. And many of those who sleep in the dust shall Awake. We see this resurrection language both in Matthew chapter 13 and at the end of the Olivet Discourse when he's talking about separating the sheep into the goats in chapter 25. <coughs> Excuse me. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. We saw this. The, the kingdom of heaven is like um, a farmer with weeds and they, they let them all grow and they separate them. It's like a, a, someone who separates fish. It's like someone who separates sheep from the goats. There's this separation language and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you remember last week in Matthew chapter 13, at the end of the parable of the weeds. In fact, I'll just turn there real quick. You don't have to. Matthew, it's not going to be on the screen. Matthew had said this. Where did it go? Then the righteous, this is 1343, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So when, when Matthew describes the end, when John describes the end, they are using the language of Daniel chapter 12. Do you see it? Am I making this up? Are you there with me? Okay. Now, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Let's skip ahead just a little bit here. Well, and then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and the other on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Does this question sound familiar to you? Isn't this what, essentially what the disciples had asked? When will these things be? What will be the sign of the end of the age? 
And I heard the man who was clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. Let's skip ahead a little bit. Well, and he says, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. We could spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> but we won't because we're not doing Daniel. We're doing Matthew. Uh, and that when the shattering of the powers of the holy people comes to an end of all these things would be finished. And I heard, but I did not understand. I'm glad Daniel didn't understand either, <laughs> right? It, this is just a little aside here. I almost put one of these prophecy charts uh, up here that you can find places. Um, people that have that much certainty in the end time calendar weird me out. Um, <laughs> Because apocalyptic literature, the literature of Daniel and Revelation is full of Im images and symbolism and we understand some of it and some of it we do our best and even Daniel, when he heard, heard this, he's like, yeah, I don't get it. And I think there should be some humility when we have our, our eschatology, our end time, um, that we should say that a lot of this stuff, we do our best to understand it, but... Imagery is difficult, it's subjective. And for whatever reason, God chose to reveal in time to us in this more difficult format. Could God have spelled it out to us? Absolutely. But he chose to do it in symbols and clouded in mystery so that I think that we would have some humility. So Daniel, this, is, this makes me feel better. He heard, but he did not understand. And so he asked again, this is again very similar to the questions that we're seeing the disciples ask for the Olivet Discourse. Oh Lord, what shall be the outcome of those things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th days. Now, talk about difficult. I don't think this is as difficult as it appears. Because what we saw was from the time that Antiochus Epiphanes had desecrated the temple until the time that the Maccabees drove out the Syrians and started the, the worship of the temple and the, and the rites of the temple back up was about three, three and a half years, which is about what this number of days is. And he says that those who show up about a month and a half later are blessed. And so I think this again has its initial fulfillment in the events between Daniel and the coming of Christ. But our question is, is there more to it than that? Is there a double fulfillment? When you read Daniel and you look at it and you say, yeah, these were fulfilled by historical people in the first and second centuries before Christ, is there more to it, though, than that? Let's think back to how all this started. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, 
He did not say, when you see an abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So when Jesus sees the events of 70 AD and the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of that and all the horrors that surrounded that with the Roman Empire, he says, Jesus says, that is a fulfillment of the abomination of desolation in Daniel. He says, that fulfills it. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, he says, when you see this, it's not just going to be kind of like what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes. He's saying it is going to be a fulfillment of that. Jesus is looking at, my opinion, double fulfillment of the Daniel prophecy. Because Jesus looks at it and he says, this is going to happen again. Jesus said that the prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC is also fulfilled in the destruction of the temple by Rome. So the question is this. Do we see the abomination of desolation which happened under Rome in 70 AD having another iteration, another fulfillment at the end of days, at the end of time? Is there another fulfillment to come? I would say this. It seems that these ungodly tyrants like Nebuchadnezzar, which Daniel, who Daniel writes about, Antiochus Epiphanes, Titus, the Roman general who was in charge of, of the forces in 70 AD, that these ungodly tyrants are forerunners of the Antichrist to come and that the New Testament applies these prophecies to him, to the Antichrist, as well. Let me give you an example. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to how Paul describes the, this one to come. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or to be alarmed. Remember this from earlier in the Olivet Discourse when Jesus began, don't be alarmed. Either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us as to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Does all of this sound familiar? It's almost as if, and I don't want to push this too far, but it's almost as if the events that led up to the first coming of Jesus are going to be repeated leading up to his second coming. That this, this Antiochus Epiphanes, this one who caused this desolation as a forerunner to Jesus is going to have, that Jesus is going to have a similar forerunner at his second coming. That this cycle of ungodly tyrants raising themselves up against the people of God is going to repeat itself and repeat itself. And I think this is where you look at 
these verses and you say it's very likely that before the coming of Jesus the second time that there is going to be a new Nebuchadnezzar, a new Antiochus Epiphanes, a new Titus, a new who is called the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And when you look at, at Matthew 24 through this lens, you see it fulfilled both in 70 AD in Jerusalem and leading up to the age to come. So let's look at this phrase here, though. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Setting himself up in the temple of God. So does this mean that the temple will be rebuilt? <clears throat> now, I wish we had more time, but we don't. Here are my thoughts on the rebuilding of the temple as far as the end times go. I don't think that the scriptures necessarily require a rebuilt temple, though I think it's very likely that a rebuilt temple is part of the end time plan. And I don't think the rebuilt temple, so some people misunderstand what the rebuilt temple would be for. They, some people think that, you know, well, God is going to... Um, the temple is going to be rebuilt and the sacrifices are going to start again and the Jews are going to be saved and they're going to be forgiven when they start offering sacrifices again. And that completely goes against what the book of Hebrews has to say. It completely goes against that we are his temple. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I think that if the temple is rebuilt, that what God is doing is fulfilling what Paul talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And we certainly don't have time to go there today. But let me summarize the argument. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant about, about um, the Jews, about the Israelites. A, a partial hardening has come on them until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And he goes on to say that they will experience this hardening to provoke them to jealousy and that after the number of Gentiles has come in, that, they, that the Israelites will be provoked to jealousy, and in that, all Israel will be saved. We see, according to Romans 9, 10, and 11, that there is a day coming, that, that for today, we live in an age where, where Israel is, is, as a whole, praise God for Messianic Jews, but as a whole, are hardened off to the gospel. And Paul says that a day will come when... Jews en masse will flood into the kingdom. And I just wonder, if they rebuild this temple and another abomination of desolation comes, if that will be what provokes them, opens their eyes to see who their Messiah is. So what's the, we've covered a lot of territory. What does this mean? So, you, you know, you get done, you go out to lunch, and you talk about whatever, and, you know, you got some nice information, but it doesn't really affect your life, does it? I mean, that was, that was some pretty cool history, and I always like maps. Um, I want to come back to the Olivet Discourse, and chapter, in verse number 13, just a couple of verses before where we started to this, the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. Being a Christian is not for the faint of heart. Why did Jesus spell out these, these prophecies and instructions to them on the Olivet Discourse? Why? So that they wouldn't be alarmed, so that they wouldn't quit, so they wouldn't bail, so they would endure. Why was, why was God revealing these things to Daniel in captivity so the people wouldn't give up because the work going ahead of, of going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple was gonna be hard and God knew that, that there was gonna be a day that came that was gonna be utterly catastrophic and in that he wanted them to have perseverance and courage. We as believers must have perseverance and courage and not give up. These verses remind us that even on the worst day of our life, God knew that it was coming. And even on the worst day of our life, it does not give us an excuse to abandon ship. The words of Jesus, that even if there's an abomination that causes desolation, you endure to the end, you keep going, you don't give up on Christ, you keep moving forward. And sometimes we can get a little soft on this, right? We can say, you know, somebody, their, their faith gets shipwrecked by something, and, and we say things like, man, that's, I just can't imagine. I mean, if that happened to me, I, I, you know, I, I, have some, I have some sympathy for them, for them walking away. I mean, that would be hard for anybody to remain faithful through that. And I bet at the end, God will know and God will show grace. And what we see is that God continues to say, the one who endures, endure, endure, don't give up. God knew that this abomination of desolation was coming, and his words to them was, don't give up. He knows the bad days that you've had in your past, and his word to you is, don't give up. He knows the bad days that are to come, and his word to you in that is, keep enduring, keep going, don't give up. I knew this was coming. I know how to get through this. Don't give up. This is, this is what this Olivet Discourse is about. We're looking forward to um, the parables of, of the judgment when we're, we're, we are held accountable to God. And, and what do we want to be in that place? When we get to that place of judgment, we want to be able to stand before God and say, I, I didn't give up. I ran the race. I kept going. There was nothing that could knock me off my race. I finished. That's where all of this is leading us. It's not, we, we don't study the end times to just go, wow, that was really interesting. Um, or look at, you know, that, that's not what we do. We study this so that we can endure. We study this so we can keep going in the fight. We study this so we stay encouraged and we don't get alarmed and we don't give up and we press on and we endure to the end. So the word for this morning is endurance. He called on the Israelites when they saw this abomination of desolation, keep going, endure. He calls on us when everything crashes, keep going and endure. Endure to the end and there will be a crown of life. Everything that we do for the name of Jesus is worth it. It's worth it. Let's endure. Thanks again for checking out this week's message. If you are interested in finding out more about King's Chapel, please visit our website at kingschapel.church. There you can find service times and more ways to connect with us. You can also follow us on social media at King's Chapel SGF. We look forward to seeing you soon.